speaking, and we will observe communion in the service, and I hope you'll come to be with us. Appreciate the music of the morning, the special music, the choir, the Bob song, the congregational singing. What a blessing it is to sing of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and rejoice in what he did and what he accomplished. And I do hope that um, your heart focuses on the fact that um, he died for you and he died for me. And your sins have been paid for. Now it's a matter of believing on him and trusting him and him alone. Romans chapter 5 this morning, we speak to you on the subject of present salvation with future benefits. It's Romans chapter 5 as we march through this great book of the Bible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 begins, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mentioned to you last week and don't want you to miss the point of what verse 7 is saying. It's hard to get anybody to volunteer to die for anybody. It's possible you get somebody to die for a good man. But the fact is, what the Bible is saying, that's not what happened when Christ died for us. Verse 8 says, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were not good people. We were not even, you know, good character people. We were not even good neighbors, good citizens, etc. He says, no, no, what you were and what we were, we were yet sinners. Sinners, people who practiced sin, enjoyed sin, loved sin, but believed it was the best thing going. Just enjoyed it to know it. It's about all that crowd that was out last night getting drunker than a skunk. Than a skunk and shot up with dope to no end. They don't even know where they are today. They thought it was the best thing in the world. And I mean, all the garbage, the vice, the wickedness, and they just loved every minute of it because they're sinners. Sinners love to sin. By the way, that's one way the scriptures teach you that you know whether you're saved or not. Do you sin and love it or you just sin and loathe it? That's how you tell. If you sin and love it, boy, I love this. This is just wonderful. This is great then you're not saved, my friend. Scriptures don't hold that up as the prospect. The fact is, it holds it up this. If in your heart there's been a change by the grace of God, wrought by the work of Christ in you, then certainly you don't love what sent Christ to the cross. You hate that. And oh, you may sin, but you won't love it. And you won't like it. You'll abstain from it. The fact is that he said, no, no, you were not in good standing when Christ died for you. That's what makes his death on the cross, as we preached last week, such a great work of love and grace. Verse number 9, then he says, Much more, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, For if, for if, when we were yet or were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. A great passage of Scripture, an exciting one, as I've told you all along, and I hope you believe it by now, that Romans chapter 5, and at least the first 11 verses, is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible to turn to regarding assurance and security of salvation. 
This passage of Scripture has more evidence of the security of the believer than any passage in the whole of the Bible of the same length as far as verses are concerned. So if you ever get to a point where you have questions about your salvation, boy, you ought to run to Romans chapter 5, and you ought to refresh your mind again in verse number 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. You and God are no longer at war. If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been justified by faith. There is no longer a war between you and God. You have peace with God. In verse number 2, by whom also we have access. You have access by faith into this grace. This grace is justification by faith. But this being justification by faith, it also gives you access to the Father. Paul only used this word access two other times, and both of them were in the book of Ephesians. And both of them had to do with access to the Lord in prayer. And you have access by this grace. You can come into the Father's presence. You can pray as we did moments ago when we stopped in this service and stopped dead still and had a word of prayer for somebody who's standing on the brink of eternity ready to step off. That's what gives us access. Otherwise, we'd have to go get a sacrifice and we'd have to bring a lamb and we'd have to cut its throat and bleed some and we'd make an atonement and then we would pray. But because we have been justified by faith and Christ shed his blood, we can come immediately into the Father's presence. We have immediate access. And that's what verse number 2 says. It also says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What that is simply this. You can rejoice in this fact that what God hath begun in you, he will finish. And the glory of God here is the process of being glorified. And that comes later. But he says you can rejoice now in what he will finish later. So what he started when he saved you is a commitment and a pledge. I will finish what I started. So you can rejoice in it. And that's what verse number 2 says. And then it says something else that's strange to our ears. Verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Boy, that's a stretch for some of us. That's hard. That's tough. That's difficult. His point is you're the only people who can. Lost people can never glory in tribulation. You can't go to a bar on a Saturday night and find any guy who, who is getting drunk to cover his trouble and his problems and his heartaches and his sorrows and all of his disgust of life. You can't find him sitting in there rejoicing that he's got all this trouble. But you ought to be able to find a believer somewhere who'd say, look, I know something that the world does not know. One, I know the Heavenly Father. Two, I know that my Heavenly Father does all things well. And three, that all things the Heavenly Father allows into my life, He allows with eternal purposes. Therefore, I can rejoice in this. I know whatever He does, He does well. And I also know that there's nothing that can happen to me apart from His divine design plan that will be good for me in eternal picture or consequences. So I can rejoice in that. Lost people cannot. So these are just four of the points, and there are many others we could comment on, but let's get to the text of today. And when I read verses 9 and following, there's a, a, something I told you a long time ago that came to mind, and though it's repetitious, I remind you of it. It's the story of the young man who went to the fortune teller. You know, he went to this fortune teller and had this fortune teller who, of course, we don't believe in works in the first place. We believe it's a, a con deal. But anyway, the fortune teller uh, looked at his palm. She read his palm and she said, you'll be, uh, you'll be happy or excuse me, unhappy until you're 40. And then he said, well, what after that? And she said, by that time, you'll be used to it. When I read that and think about that, I, I, I seriously think about this text of scripture and I'll tell you why. Because in thinking of that, sadly, that is the future prospect now listen to me, that really is the future prospect for so many people who roam planet Earth as we know it today. I mean, I was just meeting and greeting people over the weeks past, and I noticed that many of them were aimless, hopeless, 
joyless. And the fact is they were moving into eternity that was going to just be more the same and they knew it. And so for that reason, honestly, they didn't enjoy life. They had no excitement about getting up in the morning and going to their tasks, their jobs, their responsibilities. And they had no cause whatsoever. No cause. And I've noticed that about lost people. They have no cause. They're hopeless, joyless, aimless. There's just nothing in them. And the whole of days, it seems one day sort of blends and bleeds into the next. And every day is almost the same. There is just no joy there. There's no purpose in life and living. What's interesting about that, I must insert right here in the message, though, that there's one crucial point that uh, you and I need to get a grip on. And that is, if you die in your sin, never believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will go to hell and the lake of fire eventually. And I'll assure you of something. You'll never get used to it. You'll never get used to it. You see, there's something we often will forget about hell and the lake of fire. And that is that the problem with these places is that it's not only that there is pain and torment in these places, but it is also the problem of its length. That's a big deal. You see, people find that they can put up with pain knowing that it might be temporary. I recall a day when uh, you may recall may have forgotten, but I have not forgotten. You remember when Brother Herp was here at a meeting and I had hernia problems on both sides and I sat on the front row and, and prayed that somehow this platform would lower to the same height as that floor so I wouldn't have to make those two steps to get up here. You talk about somebody suffering. Uh, nobody would know how much pain I was in for those weeks and I thought, my, I ain't, I'm not going to make it. I got my will out so many times that it has, has thumbprints. I thought, I'm dying. This is surely death. If this gets worse, we're in big trouble. But the fact is, it was so bad. I mean, it was horribly bad. But you know what kept me going and encouraged? This will be over. This ain't going to last forever. I mean, if, if, when it kills me, it's over. It's done. This is going to kill me, and when it kills me, it's over. I don't have to worry about this anymore. And there was a certain sense about the temporariness of it. I could endure. I can make this because it's not forever. Let me tell you something. That's not true about hell and the lake of fire. It is forever. And for that reason, people who are hopeless here will be hopeless there because there will be no end in sight. Whatever they went in with, you remember in the book of Revelation it says, if a man is unjust, let him be unjust still. I'm telling you, whatever you go to hell in as a lost person, I'm personally convinced that's the way you'll remain for the whole of eternity. Hopeless, aimless, joyless, forever and forever. And there's no end to it. But just as surely as the pain, the torment, the hopelessness, the aimlessness is forever for people who die outside of Christ, equally so, or likewise, the pleasure, the blessings, the hopefulness is forever for those who know Christ as Savior and have a secure future, not only a secure future, but a forgiven past and a provided for present. And that's what's exciting about this passage in Romans because it not only deals as we've seen already in the past, but it also deals with our future. I call your attention to it. It's in chapter 5, verse 9, and the text says, much more, after everything we've gotten in the first eight verses, he says there's much more. By the way, you'll find that phrase used five times in these 21 verses in Romans chapter 5. You'll find it in verse 9, you'll find it in verse 10, you'll find it in verse 15, you'll find it in verse 17, and you'll find it in verse 20. Five times in 21 verses, much more, much more. In essence, it just says it just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better. You thought that was good? This is better. This is better. Much more than that, there's this. 
And that's exactly how Paul writes it. These words mean what follows is even more exciting, overwhelming, important, and good for you than what you read before. That's what it means in this context. It's good to read, for instance, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then read verse 9. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. You see, the fact is, whatever you had over there, you got much more over here, and it just gets better and better. However, when some people read the verse, the wording here strikes a challenge for them. For instance, when you say, being now, now justified, we shall be. People say, wait a minute, how can you now be justified and shall be saved from something? How can that be? You're talking present and future tense all in the same phrase. How can this be? Well, the first thing you need to do in the Bible is to understand Bible language. And even though we read the words so frequently, sometimes I don't think we fully grasp their distinctions. And in this particular case, the first thing you should understand is that you understand salvation and justification are not are not exact equivalents, okay? They're not the same. Justification and salvation are not identical or equal in every sense. They're just not. And a very clear presentation of that is right here. Justification is one step in the process of salvation. You follow me? If you're alive, grunt. <clears throat> Thank you. The fact is, justification is just one single step. For instance, what we can say, and what you would say if you read the whole of Paul's epistles, you'll find out there's a sense in which you are saved, there's a sense in which you're being saved, and there's a sense in which you shall be saved. But it didn't happen all overnight. It's in a process. It's going on because the complete package of salvation covers the whole of the Christian life. Now listen to me. Justification occurs the moment that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and it never happens again. It's once, forever, for always. Right back there. When you believed on Christ, you were justified. But you're not fully saved. And you won't be until you're glorified. Romans 8, Ryan read it in Sunday school class this morning. Whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, etc., etc. And ultimately get down to glorification. Well, that's the end of salvation. Salvation does not end until you're glorified. That's the salvation package. It is present, past, and future from the time you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And justification is just one step in the process. Now, the good news is, if I have been justified, I will arrive at home. That's a guarantee. That's the security of the believer. But the fact of the matter is, justification and salvation, as it were, are not the exact equivalents. Justification gets you, as it were, into the process of salvation that will go on for as long as you exist on this earth. Your salvation is being worked out for you as long as you're in the flesh. When you walk into the presence of God in heaven, your salvation will be complete. At that point, we can say you'll be glorified. Now, it may take place while you're on earth and being raptured or whatever, but it will be complete there. And that's the salvation that's finished. That's why Paul writes, and we'll read it later, that these bodies groan because they're still not, they're not redeemed. You think your body's redeemed, <clears throat> excuse me, but you're, you're, you're just out on the long limb and it's about to break on you. You're, you're not. Your body has not been redeemed yet. Salvation for your body has not been fulfilled, and it will not be until you're glorified. 
So the fact is that this ideal of something now, as in verse number 9, being, you know, verse number 9, much more than being now justified, we shall be, is indication of the fact that justification is just step one to get you into salvation, and salvation is an ongoing process that shall continue until you're glorified. So please understand Bible language, and it'll make life a lot easier in interpreting the book of Romans. Something else to be noted in verse number 9, not only the much more than being now justified by His blood, but notice it says we'll be saved from wrath through Him. Some things you need to understand about wrath, some things the Bible says specifically about wrath. Let me give you five things. One, let me tell you what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 3, and that's this. He said, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, our manner of life, in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. First thing you need to understand about wrath is that all people are born into this world being children of wrath. Everybody. Everybody is. You're born into this world. You're born into this world by nature, the children of wrath. Now, here's the bad news. If you remain as you were born, it assures you that you will experience the wrath of God. If you just sit back and do nothing and say, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to believe on Christ. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be born again. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to set my sail and get through life, okay? Then I can assure you of something. You came into this world by nature, the children of wrath, and you will remain so. If you do not trust Christ as Savior, you will fall under His wrath. Given. It's a given. No if, no ands, no buts. Therefore, point number two, there are only two groups of people on this earth. John chapter 3 points them out. John 3, 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So if you just sit back and say, I'm not going to believe on the Son, then you belong into that second group, and I can tell you that the wrath of God abides on you. It's like a tag. You know, you've been tagged. This guy is tagged for the wrath of God. And he's going to get it someday, some point, some place. A third point that's important, I believe, and the Old Testament prophet points it out. The wrath of God, the Bible says, is reserved for God's enemies. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. And the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. That's the fourth thing. There's a fifth thing. Or, excuse me, that's the third thing. The fourth thing is this. People are warned to act now to avoid the wrath of God. Matthew chapter number 3. He says, But when we saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, John's writing, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? People are warned to flee from the wrath to come. And so I'm saying to you this morning, if you're here in this service, you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, I'm warning you, you better flee from the wrath to come. That which God has set aside as those who are enemies of His. And remember, if you've been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, you're no longer an enemy. You have peace with God. But if you don't have peace with God and you've not been justified by faith, you're God's enemy. And Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 indicates that God reserves wrath for his enemies. There's a fifth thing. This fifth thing says people who have taken heed to such warnings and have believed on Christ as Savior should have no fear. 
should have no fear. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You have absolutely nothing to fear if you are at peace with God. If you and God are at peace, you have nothing to fear. If you and God are not at peace, you have everything to fear. And you better, just like the Sadducees and Pharisees of John's day, you better flee the wrath to come. And you flee it by fleeing to Christ and trusting Him. You need to keep the picture in mind, and that is that Jesus Christ was offered as a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice to satisfy God's demands. And at the same exact time, He appeased, He appeased God's wrath. When we say we believe on Christ as personal Savior, what we are, we're declared righteous in God's eyes and we're reconciled to God. We are exempted from His wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us. That's a past tense word. That's not what's going to happen. That's what has happened. We have been delivered from the wrath to come. You know, the Bible's full of those references where something happened back here that took care of something over there. And that's an illustration of it exactly to the point. What Jesus Christ did for us at Calvary's cross back there has an effect on something that's out there ahead of us. And the good news is we're already delivered from that. And the reason is not because of my goodness, my grace, my ability. It's because of what Christ did in paying my sin debt. I say for that reason, God's salvation provides that through Christ, we have a security from start to finish. What's back there affects what's out there. And you can rest in that if you know Christ. That's all in verse number 9. Look at verse number 10. He says, For if, if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Probably of all the verses in Romans chapter 5, this may be the best eternal security verse of all of them. Because it says a monstrous amount of things. But the first thing let me call your attention to is a, is a, a, a principle of biblical interpretation. When you're in school, you're taught the principles or the science of interpretation, hermeneutics, that's what the word is, the science of interpretation of Scripture. There are certain principles you have to go by to make sure you come out with the right conclusion. Otherwise, you'd get scrambled things all scrambled up and have a wrong deduction or a wrong interpretation. The Bible has a principle that Paul applies right here. That is, we who interpret the Scriptures have one. And Paul obviously uses it, and he used by our, even our Lord in the, in the New Testament. Let me, let me read you that verse first. Let me read you the verse of Scripture. Interesting. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And... Uh, Brian didn't know it, but uh, he referred to it in Sunday school this morning. It's in chapter 7. It's verse number 11. Chapter 7, verse number 11. Now watch it. If ye being or then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good gifts to them that ask him? Now that principle follows all through the scripture, and that is the principle set like this. Simply put, the principle is, if a lesser thing is true then a greater thing is true. That's the principle. If a lesser thing is true, then the greater thing of this is true. If parents are human and frail and failure-prone can give good gifts to their children, how much better can a good, perfect Heavenly Father do toward His children? 
the lesser, if it's true, if I know how to give gifts to my children, then how much more shall God, the Heavenly Father, who is perfect in every aspect, do a better job? That's the point. And that's the principle. If the lesser is true, the greater is true. And consequently, that's exactly what Paul does here. If God brought us to himself, now listen carefully. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10. If in essence God brought us to himself through the death of his dear son when we were enemies... I mean, reminding you, we were sinners. The Bible says we were ungodly and, and we were separated, alienated from God. If God went to all that trouble, gave up His Son while we were in that state, and He gave all that to save us from our sin, then what Paul is saying, much more since He has reconciled us unto Himself through the blood, the death of His Son, and He's alive. Don't you know He can keep us saved? Don't you know He can keep us saved? If He did all that when we were enemies, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, and now He is dead on the cross, He's bled, He's paid our sin debt, He was buried and He rose again and He's seated at the right hand of the Father, He's alive forevermore. Don't you know He can keep you saved? See, that's the point. That's the point. If He did all that while you were lost and you were an enemy, boy, think what He's doing now to keep you there. You think he's going to throw all that away and say, Ah, well, my son died, but hey, we'll do it again. I don't think so. What he did, he did once, and he did it for all forever. And the fact is, it was enough. It was sufficient. And he says, But I want you to understand, if I did all that for you while we were enemies, now that you've been reconciled, how much or to what degree do you think I would go to take care of you? How far do you think I'd go? I say to you, that verse of Scripture is probably one of the greatest verses of eternal security in the whole of the Bible. To think that God would throw out the death of His Son. That's what He'd have to do, by the way. For you to lose your salvation, if you've been genuinely saved by the grace of God, for you to lose your salvation, God would have to throw out the death of His Son and say, well, it just wasn't, it wasn't enough. That's what He'd have to do. That verse of Scripture pins it in a corner and say that's as it, as it has to be. Let me take you to another verse of Scripture that I believe Paul wrote. It's in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse number 25. We studied it when we preached through the book of Hebrews. It was a great verse then, and it's a greater verse now. If the dying of the Savior reconciled us to God, surely the living Savior can keep you saved and keep you reconciled. Hebrews chapter 7, and verse number 25, it says, Wherefore he is able also... He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. This verse of Scripture is often used, people saying, well, it means that God can save to the guttermost. And they mean by that, that there is nobody too bad for God to save. That's not what the verse says. And this is a verse of Scripture about eternal security, not about the depth to where we reach people with the gospel. And the verse proves it. It's right there when you read the verse in its context and you see what the verse of Scripture is teaching. This verse of Scripture is not referring to the depths of sin from which God can save people. Now, you can say God can save to the guttermost, and you're absolutely right. There is no way you could argue that point. That's absolutely true. You just couldn't argue that point from this verse. And just because the word uttermost is here, it does not give you liberty to make that mean that God can save people who are the worst of the worst. This is not the verse you'd run to to prove that. But that's true. 
God can save people who are just hopeless as far as human beings are concerned. People who are ugly and unkind and wicked and, and their minds are getting messed up on drugs and alcohol and everything else. God can still save them, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying He can save them to the uttermost. And that means He can see them to completion of their salvation. And it's provable by the fact of what the verse says. You see the little word seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G? Seeing means literally based upon this fact. Verse number 25 of Hebrews 7, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, based on this fact, that he ever lives to make intercession for them that believe. That's what he's saying. Seeing that he is alive right now. He'll save them to the uttermost. He'll take them home to heaven. They will be absolutely in heaven someday. And the reason is because he didn't only die on the cross. And he didn't only get buried in a tomb. And he didn't only resurrect from that tomb. He ever liveth to make intercession so that you will be saved to the uttermost. That's what the verse says. That verse is saying this is eternal security of high order. When he saved you and changed you, it was wonderful that you realized Christ died on the cross for you. Let me tell you something you ought to rejoice in. That Christ ever liveth making intercession for you as a priestly work to keep you saved. Because that's where your eternal security rests now. Not only in saving you by the death of Christ, but saving you and keeping you saved by the life of Christ. And that's what the verse is teaching. That's what verse number 25 of Hebrews chapter 7 is saying. And that's what Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 10 is saying. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now watch it. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His what? His life. He's alive and we are saved much more by His life right this moment. And so as surely as his death was exciting to know that he paid our sin debt, it ought to be exciting to you that you serve a risen Savior. And he's right this moment making intercession at the right hand of the Father for you. And that, my friend, is what keeps you saved and keeps you secure. And so there's no reason for you to wonder, to doubt, to worry, to be anxious. If you've been justified by faith, you ought to have peace with God. Something else to be noted, the death of Christ that wipes out all of our sin gives us this justification and this righteousness in the sight of God. Then it's his life that keeps us in that perspective. If Christ had not paid the sin debt, he'd still be at this moment in the tomb. He'd be like so many others before him of religious leaders. But the fact that he rose from the dead is a pledge by God the Father that there can be no claim, be no claim laid against any of us in our sin. Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he made it white as snow. You see, how can a believer whose past and future salvation is secured by God be insecure in this interim period? You see, he died for us on the cross back there. And somewhere back there, you must have believed on Christ as your Savior. And out there, he gives guarantee, you will be glorified, I'm going to take care of you. I guarantee you, you'll make it to heaven. Then how can I be insecure in between them two periods? 
How can I worry about what I am and who I am and where I'm going, what's happening in my life right here, right now? If that's secured and that's secured, then I ought to be secure in the middle. And that's exactly the truth here that Paul pushes out. If God's grace covers the sins even of his enemies, how much more does it cover the sins of his children? Somebody wrote it this way. I didn't. This is not mine. I don't know who the author is. He said, if Jesus Christ wrote us into his will, and he wrote that will with his own blood, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. He died so that the will would be in effect. But then he rose from the dead and returned to the Father in heaven that he might enforce or execute the will himself and to distribute the inheritance. Thus, we are saved and we are safe by his present life. And that's absolutely true. When we were dead in sin, Christ died for us. Much more now that he made us alive, he lives for us. He lives for us. Let me close quickly with verse 11. Romans 5, verse number 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Verse 10. For if when we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And verse 11. And not only so. That verse or that phrase appears in verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Here it is again, verse 11. And not only so. This is one of those things. You mean I get more? You mean there's something else I get? You mean you gave me all this and provided all these and you're telling me that's not all, there's something else? That's right. Not only so, but here's something else. We also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now. That's important, eternal security word. Now. Not later. Not when we get home to heaven, but we have now received the atonement or reconciliation. Here in this verse of Scripture, the phrase I call your attention to is, We also glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this, and I believe this to be very important. To joy or to boast, because the word translated elsewhere for joy and boast are interchangeable, and in much of the case here in Romans chapter 5, we joy or we boast in God through Christ. The truth is, that's an evidence of salvation. And that's really why it's tacked on to the bottom of this. If it is, in fact, you believed on Christ as Savior, you've been reconciled to Christ, you're going to heaven when you die, you have peace with God, access to the Father, you have all those things in reality, then here's an evidence that ought to be obvious. You ought to be joy in God. You ought to joy in God. And sometimes we, we miss this, but let me give you, give you a little help from somebody who showed us how. In David's writing, in David's Psalms, chapter number 33 and verse number 21, David said, For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. He wrote in the next Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. And then he did it again in Psalm 70 where he said, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let such as love thy salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. And that's what David was using to say he joyed in God. Let me tell you what you ought to watch out for. 
This is a responsibility. Verse 11, chapter number 5, I believe is a responsibility. Not only so, all these other things we enjoy, but here's something I believe we're to do to give evidence that we're in God's family, that we belong to Him. And that is that also we joy in God. Now watch it carefully. Be careful that you don't just joy in what God did, but you joy in God who He is. You see, not only in what he possesses and what he can carry out as power, but joy and rejoice and boast in God for who he is and he alone. You see, if somebody you love and you care about, if you just constantly talk about how valuable they are to you because of what you can get from them, you get the idea. If I said to the people in our community, I said, we have a great group of people at New Life Baptist Church. I'm telling you, they pay my salary every week. They never miss. They just take care of my salary. We take up an offering. We get all the money we can from them, and we just pay my salary. And we just, oh, I just love our people. They pay my salary. And, oh, I just love these people. They're so wonderful. They just pay my salary. You see, if I went around all the time talking about, oh, you're paying my salary. You're giving this money. You'd, you see what people would get the idea? You know why you like those people? Because they pay your salary, man. It can be the same way between a husband and wife. If a man just expresses to his wife all the things that she does for him, takes care of his clothes and, and, and fixes the meals and keeps the house clean and keeps the place orderly, etc., et and that's all he talks about, then you know why he loves his wife? Because of what she can do for him. She makes him feel better, and he likes it, and that's good, and that's wonderful. But if a man doesn't come home and say, Look, I just want you to know that I love you and like you and appreciate you for who you are. Now, let me tell you how it changes, and you would see it in a heartbeat. Because there have been women, as there have been men, who had stroke, a cerebral hemorrhage, and gotten down in a bed and never moved another muscle, and laid there for 20 years in duration until they died. Now we'll see what love is. Now we'll see what love is. Oh, it's easy as long as we're having a great time and everybody's healthy and well and things are just going hunky-dory and, oh, I love you because you've, uh, it's just a great meal you fix. You keep just a wonderful house. You keep the kids in order and everything's just what. And then all of a sudden, you do it at all. You've got to take care of the meals. You've got to take care of the kids. You've got to make a living. You've got to clean the house. You've got to do all these things. Now we'll see where love is. That's why I say, and I say this carefully, I appreciate men like Brother Brummett who has a wife in a nursing home and visits her almost every day, though she didn't know him. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. That is no small thing. It is no small thing to take care of people when they can't understand who you are. I appreciate Shirley taking care of her mother when she had no idea some days who she is. See, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that because that says love went beyond. What can you do for me? What can you do for me? Now, if you can do enough, I love you. But if you can't do enough, I probably won't love you very long. Because when I get through taking from you what I want from you, I'll just throw you away like I do old used tools or furniture or clothes. And I'll lay them aside and I'll go to something else that can meet my need. What's interesting about that is sometimes we Bible-believing Baptists treat God that way. You know, get everything in the world from Him, but never stop and say, God, I just want to stop and thank you for who you are. All the things you do for me are wonderful for sure, but I want to thank you for just being God. 
and being the anchor of my soul and, and where I can come and pour my heart out to you and you listen to me. You're so gracious and so kind and so wonderful. I, I just love you for who your power, oh, your loving attributes that, that, that filled our lives and changed our course I, and, and all the things that you can and can do and work in the life of a human being and have done so in the lives of Lord, I just love you for who you are and want to give you the glory and praise for that. You see, I think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, but we also joy in God. I believe he's talking about his person. Now, I certainly believe he incorporates what he produces because I think that's the addition through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he is adding. I think he's saying it's okay to, to talk about his, his power and what he possesses and does and carries out. I think that's wonderful. But my point is just don't get to major too much on the one and forget the other. Joy in God and who he is. And there'll be times in your life when you may lose everything that you call yours. And yet God in heaven will still be in your corner. When David came home that time from the fighting the battles and the Philistines had come in from the backside of the camp and had absolutely devastated the camp and taken all the women and children and killed some of the men. And the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. I'm telling you, my friend, there are places and occasions and circumstances where that may come your lot. And you'll find out whether you love the Lord for what he could do for you or you loved him for who he is as a person. And you love him as a person, I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll do what you do with human people. You'll want to spend some time with him. Coming to church won't be a tough deal if when you come here you're coming to see him. I know my preaching is not the best in the world, so I'm not expecting that you come here to hear preaching. Our music is good, but it's not the best in the world, and I understand you don't come here to hear music. But what I do expect is for you to come here and with all of your heart seek to meet the Lord and to worship Him, and to worship Him from your heart. Be open and honest before Him. Don't pull any tricks and don't try to be what you're not. Just be who you are. And let him know that you want to be as honest as you possibly can before him because he sees through us all. He sees in the darkness as well as the light. And my friend, this morning in this passage of Scripture, I believe what Paul is urging us on to is the fact that he's done all these other wonderful things for us and given us all this security. The least, the least we could do is join God. And to do that, people will notice. You say, man, you, you seem to be so, you know, glad and happy in the Lord. You seem to be joying in the Lord. Why is that? Well, let me give you Romans chapter 5, and I can tell you. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is doing here. By the way, it's something else to be noted. Back over in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, if you went back over a chapter and look at verse number 19. Romans chapter 3 and verse 19, and I am closing, so hang with me. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, now listen, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Isn't it interesting then in chapter 5 and verse 11, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying now is, now it's time where you've been silenced by your guilt. It's now time to speak up. It's time to open your mouth and joy in God. It's time for you to do what David gave you illustrations of doing. Over there, Romans 3.19, your mouth was shut under the condemnation and the guilt that God laid upon you through his word. 
But now here in Romans chapter 5, it's time to speak up and to do what? Joy in God. It's time to talk. It's time to speak. It's time to give God the praise. In Paul, or excuse me, John, other passage of Scripture, someone referred to him as David giving a reference. But I think David's reference in Psalm 40 is the best one. He says, Psalm 40 verse 2, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a, on a rock, and he established my goings. And he had put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. What that passage of Scripture is saying, whereas once my mouth was closed because I was under such condemnation, since I have now been saved by the grace of God and reconciled to God, my mouth is open. And what does it do? Does it boast about my abilities to save myself? No, not at all. What does it boast about? It boasts in my God. And others will see it fear and trust in God. You talk about evangelism. That's evangelism. When you as a believer do what you ought to do, enjoying in God and boasting in God and lifting God up, this passage of Scripture, if it, if it can be trusted, if you can trust the Scriptures, it said many people will see it and they'll fear and they will trust in the Lord. Isn't that what we're after? Do we want people to trust the Lord? I suspect it depends on us. Then how much are we joying in God? How much are we boasting in the Lord instead of ourselves? Do we talk about I, me, and mine? Or are we talking about Him and His? The passage of Scripture Paul leaves us with is that ideal. By the way, it's an important point to close this section with verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God. Look at the phrase, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's an interesting thing because that's exactly how we started verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that tells you is a very simple thing. There is no hope. There is no hope outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. There is no hope. Justification uh, and, and our taking care of our sin problem was through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your joying and your rejoicing and the happiness of your heart is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and your walk with Him. Everybody in this room, the degree to which you are joying and rejoicing in God is to the exact proportion of your relationship to Jesus Christ and your walk with Him. How well you know Him, how often you meet Him, how much involved you are in His Word and awareness of it, to what it tells you, and your expression to do it. If you're not interested in God's Word, you don't care what He said, you won't know Him very well. You'll never get to know Him well. His Word is the path to a close relationship with God Himself. It's the only path. You can read all the books about the Bible you want to. And I love books. You don't have to go very far just to go to my office and look at the three walls that are pretty much covered. Eleven or twelve bookcases in there, all of them full of books. I love books. But all those books that are written over there are primarily written about God, about the Bible. This, my friend, is God's Word. God wrote this. And if I want to know God... This is the book I come to. Those others may be a help and they may be a blessing, but I don't get caught up in them and I don't get intoxicated by the truths they share. I get excited about coming back to this and seeing what God said himself. That's what I want. And that's what I want for you. This thing I would remind you of, this verse of Scripture reminds me of it. One of the very first fruits of sin are human parents of Adam and Eve in the very Garden of Eden. 
was that they were to flee from God's presence. You remember? The Bible says when they heard the voice of God in the cool of the day, they hid themselves. That's an interesting thing. Because in contrast to that, in verse number 11, there is no fear. There's no running from God. There is rather a running to God to joy and to rejoice in Him. There's a contrast here. It indicates, as it were, the early fruit of sin is to run from God. The early fruit of salvation is to run to Him and to rejoice in Him. To learn early, my help cometh from the Lord, in whom I rest every hour. That's where we run. We know where to run. Alphon said, you know, it's not that I know where everything is in the Bible. But just knowing how to get to where it is in the Bible is a big help. And that's the same way it is about the Christian life. Knowing that God's Word has the answer. And the point about all that is we run to Him, we joy in Him, we rejoice in Him. And there's a reason because of what verse 11 closes with. We have now received atonement. That's why we don't run. That's why we don't flee. That's why we're not scared to come into God's presence. Yes, He's a holy God. Yes, He's an awesome God. And yes, He could do anything in, in anything He wishes or thinks. He could kill me if He willed. But I come to Him on the basis of my relationship to His Son that He sent to die for me. And that's what the closing part of the verse says. Whom we have now received the atonement. I... Uh, picked up our songbook this week and I was thumbing through it and I ran across this song. We don't often sing it, but we've sung it some. It's a song written by Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors, the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come. And leap, ye lame, for joy. I think Charles Wesley caught the essence of Romans chapter 5 and verse number 11. Joy in God. My well, question to you and to my own heart would be, I don't need a thousand tongues. I just need one. What am I doing with it? Do I joy in God with this tongue I do have? Can I speak and glorify God and tell people what good and great and wonderful things He has done for me and how good and great and wonderful He is? If I don't, then I've already failed the first test. He's given me something, and someday I'll be held accountable for what I did with what He gave. If He gave me a tongue, it's obvious He gave me a tongue for purpose. And the tongue was not just to make a lot of noise. It was to tell other people about who good and gracious and wonderful He is that they may fear and trust Him. I hope you'll use your tongue that way. How is it with you personally? If you died right where you sit in this service here at the New Life Baptist Church and we 
were to go to one of the rooms and one of our ushers would call the EMTs and they rushed to this premises and they brought a gurney down through the aisle here in the service and they placed you on it. And you died before you got to Johnson County Memorial Hospital. Where would you spend eternity? In heaven or in hell in the lake of fire? It's important that you understand that if you were to go to hell when you die, as some people may, and some people have, for the moments I've been speaking this morning in this service, all around the world, not only in America, but on our mission fields where we have missionaries, there have been people who have died. And they are at this moment crying out in a devil's hell, wishing for one more opportunity, which they'll never get. And they would give anything they had ever owned to trade places with you sitting here in this service so they'd have one more chance. One more chance. One more chance. And there's one thing you cannot guarantee yourself. You cannot be sure you'll ever have a second chance to make a first decision for Christ. Would you today, if you've never believed on Him as Savior, would you not take God at His word and believe all that He's done, all the details, blessed benefits that He has provided in Jesus Christ? Would you not trust Him and believe on Him today as your Savior? And those of you who know the Lord, as most do, take heart, my beloved. This is your security. It doesn't rest on you. It rests on Him and His finished work. And He did it well. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Scriptures and thank you for the glorious privilege we have to read them and to study them and think on them. Thank you for this service and for the wonderful music we heard this morning about the cross of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, for the sacrifice that your Son made and carried out on that cross that day. And though we have been many years separated from it, it still has within its influences upon us a sense to make us feel as if it were yesterday that Christ died. And we seem to be so much more aware than many years past. And today, Father, we thank you for not only his death on the cross, not only you raising him from the dead, which we'll celebrate in earnest next Lord's Day, but we celebrate today, too, in a sense, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ there in your presence, doing the high priestly work of interceding in our behalf and Father thereby assuring our salvation to its conclusion and completion. So right here this morning I thank you as the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church for your son, the Savior of the world, for the great work he has wrought, for all these blessed benefits that come our way, all the security that he has heaped upon us. Father, I pray today help us to trust you in your word in these truths. And I do pray for any man, woman, boy, or girl in this building who may be religious but may yet be lost, just like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. May have all kind of understanding of who God is and what He's done, but for a fact have never really honestly believed on Him as Savior. And if they die, for one day they will, they would spend eternity, if in fact the word spend is right, they would live on, die on eternity forever and ever hopelessly lost forever. Please wake them up to this by your Holy Spirit and the conviction that he brings. 
and urge upon them in this hour to act upon the faith that God gives. Speak to our hearts, work in our lives, and bring forth the fruit you've ordained for the hour. Those who ought to come for salvation, please help them come. And those who ought to come for baptism, help them to come. And those who ought to come for, for church membership, help them to come. And those who ought to come and just pray, spoken to their hearts about a matter that they need to address, help them to come even in this hour. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake and his glory. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, and turn in your hymn book to 282. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I want you to come just the same way. If you're here without Christ, we want you to come. If you're here with need of baptism as a believer, we want you to come. If you're here as a Bible-believing Christian who been baptized and certain of your salvation and know about the New Life Baptist Church. You know us. You know what we are, who we are, what we believe, where we stand. This is a place for you. We invite you to come and join with us. Join shoulder to shoulder. Do the work of the ministry. Carry it out in this place. The point is, whatever the need is, if God has spoken to your heart, this is the time to address it. Not later, but now. Now is the time. I hope you will. 282 verse 1. Let's sing. You obey the Lord. Would you together? Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Two. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Savior. We are grateful. We're privileged. We're honored for the great work you've done in our hearts, in our lives, in our church. We thank you for every person that you've saved over the years and the centuries. Thank you, Father, for all those who've called into your work, your ministry. And thank you for all those who extend, as it were, their own effort, their own time, energy, and talent to reach others with the gospel of grace. And Father, this morning we thank you for the security we have in Christ to know that if we die today, we'd be in your presence, to know that we're here today living and moving about on this earth as your child and as your ambassador, your representative. And I pray that you'd help us to be bold to stand for you and to share the gospel of grace of God. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be ever mindful of how much you loved us in giving your son for us even when we were unlovable and we were enemies and we were wicked and ungodly and sinners as Romans 5 states so clearly. I pray help us to comprehend as best that humans can how great a love you had for us. Bless now as we go from this place. Bless our people. Thank you for the New Life Baptist Church family. Thank you for the privilege you've given us to be their pastor. 
And thank you for the great truth of your word that stirs and moves our hearts and lives to greater commitment to you. So bless us. We leave this place. Use us to honor and glorify yourself for the remainder of it. Bless Brother Fair as he opens the scriptures to us this evening. Use him in a wonderful way to challenge us or your will for our lives. Bless our time of communion. Bless our deacons as they share with the church and as we serve one another in this regard. Use that to encourage our remembrance of you and your work for us in this world. Guide us as we go now. Give grace and encouragement and safety as we leave this place. Bring us back the same. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Amen.